Web 2.0 Innovation Trend Collaboration Software Metadata Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 332 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we considered the recent stories of organizations not updating or replacing old technology and how that can sooner or later bite them in the butt. In this episode, we wanted to talk about Tom's area of focus and expertise, the increasingly important world of information governance, its current state, what roles lawyers could and should play in it, and because everyone is talking about artificial intelligence these days, what to expect from AI in IG. And I'll press time for good tips for any one of our listeners wanting to get into the field of information governance. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Ma Report, we will indeed be discussing the important but still neglected field of information governance. In our second segment, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about our next project, which is using GPT-3, or soon, hopefully, GPT-4, to create a chatbot based on our new collaboration tools and technologies book that will hopefully answer your questions about collaboration tools as if you were talking directly to us. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip website or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, we wanted to revisit my current area of employment concentration and expertise, and that is information governance. It is becoming increasingly more important for law firms and companies to have some sort of information governance function or program. But unless you're a really big firm or a really big company, that's still not happening, I think, the way it really needs to happen. So we thought we'd talk about what information governance, or IG, is, why it's important as a discipline, uh, what lawyers can or should do to become more involved in the field. So, Dennis, I'll, I know you've got questions for me, but I'll start off with a question. Dennis, what, it is, what is it that you think that lawyers are able to bring to the information governance table these days? I mean, I, I sort of think the problem, isn't it really, that that lawyers are having trouble even finding the information governance table these days. I think lawyers have tons to bring to the table. And you, and I've seen this evolution of data privacy lawyers uh, rolling into information governance. Uh, and I, I think that the, the skill set of lawyers is really well suited to this field. So I, I think it's if lawyers kind of look at that skill set, look at the needs out there, I think there's potentially really, really interesting places for lawyers. But I think while I say that, Tom, it probably does make sense to explain uh, to our listeners what the heck uh, information governance really is. Well, so I want to describe it like a big umbrella. I think of information governance as a framework, but I think that one way to start out talking about it is that information governance is sort of the new term and then some for what many more seasoned lawyers, people who've been around for a while, would think of as records management. Um, it's more than that. It's more than records management, but it's what 
records management has become. And uh, a lot of organizations still use the term records management and think about it, but they have a decidedly paper-based focus to that. They're thinking of paper when they think of records. Um, We've talked to so many companies where the employees say, oh, we've got a great records management program. We're taking care of our paper just fine, but all of the electronic information doesn't count. We're keeping that forever. Um, So clearly they don't really understand it. Information governance has grown out of that to encompass the entire life cycle of information from creation to disposition. And so that includes a lot of different things. It includes privacy. It includes making sure that you're protecting personal information as part of that life cycle. It includes information security, cybersecurity, those types of things, protecting all types of sensitive information, not just personal information from bad people who might want to get it. It includes litigation readiness, which I guess is another way to say e-discovery, but we really think of litigation readiness as another part under that umbrella saying, how can companies or law firms or whoever he needs to respond to a lawsuit, how are they able to go and find and locate, collect, produce, review, whatever, what have you, the information that's necessary should they be involved in a lawsuit or a regulatory matter or anything like that. So it's really, there are really multiple parts of the whole information governance framework. Um, And like, I think, as you say, there are a lot of areas in there in which lawyers could find a nice home. But I will say throughout this, that that's a yes, but, or maybe a yes, and I can't remember how I want to call it, is that I see lots of issues where lawyers just decide we can do this at our firm, and we can do information governance, but then they never bring the technical side of information governance to bear. They only bring, put in place policies. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, why I think that's a problem. But I, so I'm saying I think there's a great place for lawyers in this whole field. But there's a caveat there, and that is making sure that you have the technical side as well as the process and policy side. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that is the key to say I've bring some perspectives and some experience probably as a lawyer, but there's this whole uh, technical side, as you describe it, but kind of really understanding what data is these days, how it flows, um, how it's used within a company. I, I think the expectation of the regulators today and probably going forward is going to be that you know, your your clients, uh, you know, who you work for, even if you're a law firm, that you're going to be able to explain, describe, track the, the flow of information, you know, from, as Tom said, from cradle to grave so that people can get that. And so I do think you have to have a little bit of technical uh, and, and it will grow over time. But I think you having that kind of background in information and how it's organized and, and you know, analyzed, worked with these days is essential. And I also like, Tom, that your your description of it is, is an umbrella because uh, with all these different components. When I was at MasterCard, we had this notion of we, we sort of look at privacy by design. You know, so from the beginning, could we build privacy into the products that we have? And I think that became, you know, an element of information governance for us. But I, I think what sometimes surprises lawyers still um, is that that within that whole universe of information within an organization that e-discovery, or it's really interesting the term you said, Tom, uh, litigation readiness is such a a really a small subset of of the whole information governance world. 
Oh, it really is. And to be real honest, what's really fascinating to me is a lot of our clients these days tend to be companies that I would consider they're a kind of in the middle market. They're not all massive companies who by nature generally have a lot of litigation. They're going to have a lot of lawsuits that they're dealing with. The middle market by comparison, I would, I, I mean, I talk to them and they say, well, we probably have about five cases going on right now, but that's it. And we don't really care that much, which to me is a huge information governance risk because the one thing that big companies have going for them for, because they have a lot of litigation is they get to practice a lot. So they get to follow the process and they know what to do where companies that have very little, if something big comes in that they have to deal with, they're probably going to have to spend a lot of money hiring a vendor who can do it for them and paying their law firm a lot more than they would if they than if they had everything under control internally to be able to do it. But so it's it's a lot smaller piece. And frankly, I think that in terms of companies or law firms getting their information governance house in order, there is so much to do. In fact, if you go and look these days at the the current model of the electronic discovery reference model, in just the last few years, they added information governance to the front of it. And it's huge compared to the rest of the model, um, which says if you don't have that in order, then that makes the whole e-discovery process a whole lot harder. And I think, you know, I look at in from a perspective, a lot of data protection, data privacy these days. And I, I just think that the requirements that are being put on companies and the responses you have to have. And if there is a breach, I just don't know how you can really do this stuff without having solid, solid information governance in place. Uh, so you're probably running into that as well, Tom. And then then I, I know that uh, the other thing that's interesting to me, too, is there's so much new data. And you 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 talked about the paper versus digital. But I, I, saw, I ran into that from time to time where people would say, well, we're not looking at certain things because it's not a record. It's technically not a record. And I'm going, there's like tons of data out there now um, that might be used in different ways that's not sort of classically what was called a record. So so maybe it's a good time if you talked about records management and how that is used these days and where that fits into information governance. This could turn into a really long discussion. So I'm going to try to keep it brief because what you just described there is really the one of the big modern issues that we have right now, which is a lot of companies, when you talk to them about information governance, they go, oh, yeah, our IT department is, has got a data governance program, and they're all over that. Well, data governance is not the same as information governance. I would argue that it is under the information governance umbrella. I would say that it is part of it. Data governance is about better management of your I will call it structured information, your data. I hear lots of people throwing the word data around to mean all sorts of things in the organization. But when I think of data governance, most IT departments are thinking about taking information that feeds from different systems, sometimes into a data warehouse or a data lake or something that, um, that, that companies and or law firms can run analytics on, can do predictions and forecasting and trending over the next couple of years. It's really useful. But everything that comes out or that goes into those areas could arguably be called records. The way we define a record is really simple. It's a simple definition. A record is something that concerns the business of the company that, too, 
has a defined retention period. Either there's a law out there that says we have to keep it a period of time, or it has a business value that says we have to keep it a period of time. Now, the big challenge we have today is lots of companies want to keep that amorphous big blob or big lake of data forever so that they can run on it. But the problem that you run up against there is primarily the privacy laws, because you're going to have personal information in there. And what we're seeing a lot of companies come to us today to say, you know what, we're realizing that our retention schedule that says we got to keep this personal information, you know, like, for example, we have to keep a personnel file from the time that they're terminated for and then for another six years. But the California privacy rule says we should be getting rid of that a whole lot sooner. How do we square all of that? And so a lot of companies are now starting to figure out we've got to get rid of and de-identify some of this information. So you've kind of opened up a big, nice kettle of fish here by asking that question, because those are, I think, some of the biggest issues today in information governance is how to handle all of these massive amounts of of data, allowing a company to use it as they need to, but also making sure that you're only keeping the right information and not running afoul of any laws that are part of that. I will also say very quickly that the way I'm describing it here makes it sound like information is by nature a complicated thing. And part of what I like to preach is that it doesn't have to be complicated. It can be. It's, it's definitely hard to do, but it doesn't have to be complicated. We see so many companies that have developed these complicated taxonomies and listings of words that need to be done that just turn out to be so useless when people try to use them. And, and they're just in their tools these days that you don't even have to use a taxonomy in using them. There are companies that have these massive records teams. They are record analysts that are responsible to analyze information before it goes into a system. And I, I just think that those are, I don't want to say that they're a waste of jobs, but it's overcomplicating something. Processes that get put in place in the name of information governance that are too hard for the average employee to understand and follow. There's a lot of that going on out there. And I think that that some of these parts of information governance don't have to be so complicated because ultimately what you want is your employees to be able to understand them and follow them, or they're going to wind up keeping stuff even longer and putting your company more at risk, increase cost, decrease productivity. I've been blabbing on for a little bit. Let's pause for a minute and see if there's anything else you want to ask. Well, no, I, I was thinking, Tom, that in the sort of the principles be, uh, you know, uh, behind the EU approach, I mean, one that I think is, is definitely going to come into play as we move forward is the notion you should keep as little personal information as is necessary. So you're looking at that and keep it for the shortest period of time that is needed. And, and that, I think, illustrates the problem that you were saying when people say, oh, we're just keeping this personal information as part of this big pool of storage um, without kind of thinking it through. I also see this evolution that, um, and it's not surprising, and we'll talk about this, I know, in the second segment a little bit of time, but the information governance tends to be this team approach. And the questions that come up tend to get asked of the data privacy lawyers. So I think that's why you see this evolution of some data privacy lawyers into the records management to information governance area. And I, I think that's an opportunity. But I, I I think that typically when they reach out, you know, when somebody who's involved in information governance reaches out with the legal question, they're going to the data privacy lawyer 
And, and so I think that's interesting. The other thing that I think is super interesting these days is that when we look at cybersecurity and the idea of ransomware, I think that having really good information governance approach, it, to me, just seems part of the whole uh, core cybersecurity protection function these days. I don't, know what you, I don't know if you agree on that, Tom, but that just seems to me like you want to know what you have, how to restore it, where things are kept, what might be vulnerable. All those things fit together for me. No, 100%. But what you're describing, all the things that you're describing sort of support my argument that the best information governance programs span across multiple parts of a company or a law firm. So it's not just privacy. It's it's legal. The, the, the part of legal that doesn't deal with privacy, it's information security. It's multiple areas. You know, we get a lot of companies tell us, well, where should information governance sit in our company? And we'll talk about this more after the break, but it's not, but it's, there's no simple answer to that. There, it's, it, the, the best answer is it's cross-functional and it needs to be because there are so many different parts of a company or a firm that have an interest in a piece of information governance. So let's wrap up this segment, Tom, and let me just ask you, what are the two or three biggest issues you see in this field of today? I love how you say let's wrap this up because that <laughs> with with that I could I could talk another twenty minutes. Um, so I'll make it I'll make it short because I think we've talked about one of the biggest issues, which I think is privacy. I think that that more companies these days are coming to say, oh no, we finally have to start complying with California. It's really California that's got a lot of companies that are up in arms, but frankly, we have a lot of other states that have laws that are starting to come into effect as well. So it's not just going to be California. It'll be a lot of states. Um, I don't expect the federal government to do anything anytime soon, but what you really have to do is, I wouldn't call them exceptions to the privacy laws, but there are conditions in the privacy laws that sort of uh, offset that what you called just a minute ago, what you described, I, I called data minimization, keeping information no longer than is reasonably necessary for the legitimate business purpose for which you collect the information. And so what we see and what we do for a lot of companies is we help them define that legitimate business purpose. So if, for example, the statute, uh, the statute of limitations for an employment action in your state is five years, you're going to want to keep a hold of that personnel file for at least five years, even if it has personal information in it. That's your legitimate business reason, because there are other laws that prohibit me from getting rid of it sooner. So that's one issue that we see a lot of is help us comply with privacy because it's conflicting with our information governance responsibilities. The other is we used to see a big world where lots of companies were dealing with enterprise content management tools like Documentum and OpenText and FileNet and keeping documents in those types of systems. These days, most companies that we see working have just decided we're going to go with what we have, and that's Microsoft 365. And we need to learn how that manages information. And Every client, every company that we work with wants to learn how to do it. And that is a huge business these days is helping companies move their information into Microsoft 365 and managing it in a way that is compliant with an information governance program. Those are the two, definitely the two biggest issues I see going on today. And before I get keep going, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. 
Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard. And we are back. Tom, this is a big job, isn't it? I mean, like, how how should people get started? Sort of what, what have you seen out there? I mean, to me, it does seem like it is... Uh, this cross-functional team approach, but is is that what you see most commonly? What's interesting is it really depends on the size of the company or the size of the firm, because the bigger the company, the more resources you can throw at it, the more people who are available to spend time. But in bigger companies or firms, what we see is sort of a three-tier approach, which is that there is a steering committee at the top that is cross-functional, that takes up legal and IT and privacy. And if you have a records management function and compliance, all of those groups are, are stakeholders at the table. They meet two or three times a year. They decide on overall strategy and policy. They approve different things. Um, they have overall oversight. They um, delegate the day-to-day management to sort of an information governance manager, information governance director, those types of things. That person is a usually a full-time employee, and for a lot of smaller companies, it's hard to find somebody. They don't want to hire anybody like that, so they usually appoint from within, but that's even harder. And then what we usually see is that the manager is good for managing day-to-day activities for the whole company, but they don't have sort of the boots on the ground for each department or each area of the firm. Those groups know their records better than the manager will. So we usually see some type of of coordinator or a records champion or something like that in the group that part of their job, 10% of their job is championing the policies and procedures and the schedule within that group, but also helping the manager out do training and uh, do other exercises during the year. So that's sort of our, I would consider that my the best practice way to deal with it, but it's all over the place depending on how many people you have, what type of resources are available, how you can get people away, and what type of will there is to do that. So it's a, uh, bigger companies have things like these record analysts or records clerks for very long periods of time. A lot a lot of those were designed around paper records. I'm not sure, sure exactly what they work on today unless they're dealing kind of with enterprise content management systems to enter that information, making sure it all works appropriately. But like I said, in the days of Microsoft 365, where everything is about SharePoint and, and, and Teams and things like that, it feels to me like those types of jobs are going to become less prevalent in companies that might be using other tools instead of enterprise content management. Yeah, and I had sort of an interesting perspective as I saw the evolution of this role at, at MasterCard, and I had the chance when uh, my my friend Joanne Stonier, who's the chief data officer at, at MasterCard, uh, was came to to Michigan State to to do a keynote on AI and data ethics, and 
And we were sort of talking about the evolution of of her role, which you know, went from data privacy lawyer to, you know, like chief privacy officer to chief information governance officer to chief data officer, and like that whole role. And you know, so it's interesting to see how. And this, I think, could be truly interesting for some lawyers to say, like, somebody needs to look at the big picture, and there are other components, but. Is we look to say, how do we comply with with privacy laws? How would we, uh, you know, lobby or have a, a voice in new data privacy laws? Uh, what is this notion of, of of data ethics? What? How does AI come into this field? You know, what's going on? Can we take what we have and use information governance and kind of embed it in, into, into our products and services so we're, you know, we have that data privacy and security built into what we're doing, you know, like as a matter of course. So, you know, what we use the term privacy by design, you know, from, from the beginning. Um, so I, I think it's really interesting in how the role has evolved and how significant it can be, you know, especially in, in, in companies that have tons of data or in, in kind of in that world. But that's starting to become come everybody, isn't it, Time So many companies are really all about data these days. They are all about data, but I'll challenge that for a minute and say that it depends on if you're calling data what I say see as being in a database or a warehouse or a data lake and is rows and lines of data that you can run reports on and you can analyze, yes, more and more and more and more data. But I would make the argument that your unstructured information, your Word files, your Excel spreadsheets, your PDF files, there is at least as much of that data going out there, and it's called unstructured for a reason. It's because it's unorganized, that it's not something that people organize very well. The one thing that structured data has going for it is, is that it's structured, it's organized. It's not going to get out of control except for in volume and size, whereas this becomes, to me, the unstructured data is actually, to me, the bigger issue. It's the bigger problem because think of all the personal information that exists out there in multiple copies, and oh wait, it's also on somebody's mobile phone and it's also somebody is storing it on because they might email some of their documents home to their work and so it is so far out of control that it's hard to figure that out i think that's actually a harder nut to crack than the data no question that data is difficult and it's challenging and i think that the larger companies have a better handle on it with their chief data officers and their data governance programs that they're trying to get a handle over clean data and data integrity and making sure that everything is right. Um, but I'd make the argument that your unstructured information actually poses a larger risk to companies than the size of the structured data that most people have. Yeah, and I, I was going to ask you about that, Tom, because it seemed, I would say the same thing, that we're seeing all this you know, truly unstructured stuff and in so many different locations. Um, and you can look at there's going to be video, there's audio, there's Internet of Things, there's swipe card data. Like the, just, and you think what is going on in the, in the typical company, even small ones, uh, where, where there is, are these different, you know, different forms of data that are, are starting to come into play. And like you said, it could be on a bunch of devices or different cloud services or all those things. And so it, it becomes a very complex 
thing, I, 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 I think. Well, I'm talking to a company just this week and talking to some of their employees, and they've told me, you know, I'm just talking to one department, and I ask them where they store documents, and they say, well, we have a, a network drive that we call the K drive, and it's for our department, but we also use the P drive, which is a public drive, and we store some things on there too. Now, I also use my personal user drive, which is the U drive to store some things, but then they gave us a OneDrive account and we also use OneDrive and I sometimes use that for some of my personal information if I want to share it. Now, I also, some of my really personal stuff I put on my C drive on my computer and then, you know, they just gave us Microsoft Teams last week and we found out you can actually store files there too, so we've started putting things and I'm like, do you just know you just described 20 different places that you store things <laughs> and, and no wonder it's hard for people to be productive. I mean, I mean, what's interesting here is, is that we're, we're talking about a lot of really important drivers at a company like cost, like risk, huge risk for this sort of stuff. But to me, the hidden driver for all these companies is productivity. You know, the more you can control this stuff, the better people are productive. You know, I ask these people, I say, does this sound like a common uh, theme? I know how to find my own documents, but if I need to find somebody else's, I just send them an email and have them send it to me. Well, that's not how it should work. You should be able to collaborate with each other in a good way. And productivity is a huge sufferer of bad information governance. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's that's truly underestimated. So Tom, if, if I'm a lawyer and I want to, despite the complexities we just described, I mean, I, this just seems like such a high growth field and, and, it, and lawyers have a great skill set for it. But what, what type of training would do you find people need to do uh, to do this role or to get ready to do this role? Well, you know, I had on the job training. I joined, you know, my company 12 years ago, just having some basic information, some some knowledge of e-discovery. And I learned as I went and it was it was great, great learning. You know, if there's no college courses, for example, on information governance. There are things called on information sciences. Um, you know, there's library sciences, which kind of gets into some of the philosophies of information governance, data sciences, certainly. Um, so if you want to take a course on something, those are the types of classes that get offered, but they don't really approach the governance issue that I talk about mostly with information governance. Now, in terms of training, I'll be self, self-serving for just a second and say, you know, my company does a lot of really basic webinars that talk about the basics of information governance, and they're all free for people to watch. You can just go to our website. You can, you can find them. Um, there's a site called MER Sapient. MER stands for Managing Electronic Records. They do a lot of really good content on information governance. Um, if you're interested in e-discovery, ACEDS, A-C-E-D-S, um, our good friend Mary Mack and, and other friends are part of that, and they put out a lot of good good content. Um, a lot of people might think that uh, the company uh, organizations like ARMA, which is sort of the Records Management Association, would have good content. I would just say buyer beware because I, I feel that they're starting to get a little out of touch with the times and, and they might not be the best materials to, to train. Um, but those, I think, are some of the probably the best places to go and learn more about it and understand kind of what's going on. There's another group called AIM. AIM. I think they've kept up mostly with the times, although they spent, seem to spend a lot of time on imaging and things like that of, of records. But uh, all of those, I think, are, are decent and reasonable uh, places to look for training. So 
There is a part of us, right, Tom, that says maybe AI can can help sort all this stuff out and, and actually take care of us, care of it. And I think that as we described it, that doesn't really seem possible. But are you seeing anything with AI coming into this into this field? Oh, yeah. AI is already here. It's been here for a while, actually. The theory between behind AI and, and information governance is part of what you want to eliminate in information governance is the user, is, is having to, if the user having to make decisions on how long to, re, to retain information or when to get rid of information or how to classify information the right way. It's trying to take the user out of the thing as, long, as much as possible because one, we all have day jobs, we, so we don't have time to do it. And two, when it all comes right down to it, most of us would rather keep it all forever than actually try and do the right thing with it. So there are a lot of tools out there right now that will go with it, that will claim to go onto your, say, your network drive, and they will be able to search for files that meet a certain criteria, and they will apply certain labels to them, and you can then apply retention to them, and you can manage them that way. I will say that there is a lot of good promise in those, and some of the tools work pretty well for things like credit card numbers, social security numbers, you know, there are a lot of data loss prevention tools, we call them DLP tools, that are designed to go and find that information. And they, those tools are really good at finding specific kinds of information. Where some of those tools just aren't quite ready yet is you've got, if, if a company is used to creating documents a lot of different ways, but then calling them all the same thing, training an AI on what all the different ways they are is hard and challenging. So some of the tools right now can't go and find certain types of documents because they've been named in different ways. They have different naming conventions or they have different titles to them or the wording in there is not, you're not going to find the same wording in each type of contract or invoice or whatever the document is that you're looking for. So I think AI is really Got a lot of good tools, solid tools working for it, but I think it still has a way to go. I think, frankly, where AI is best in information governance is still on e-discovery and in the predictive coding and machine learning and those types of areas. I think they've made a lot more strides toward it than just the general information governance field. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting where you because uh, as as you described it, the credit card number is really illustrates this because it, it, it seems like AI would do really well with this sort of super structured data because you go like I'm looking for a string of sixteen numbers exactly. that might or might not be uh, separated by dashes into groups of four, and boom, it's going to do an awesome job of that. But if you know, it's as like you said that when you name things uh, the same way um, and it, it's it's for something different, uh, that's going to be really problematic. So, Tom, it seems to me that this is a field that's challenging and it's going to get more challenging and it's important and it's going to get even more important. So do you want to like, think we should wrap up with maybe some of your, you've given some great tips already, but maybe some of your, your other tips for, for people who might want to go into this field? So, you know, I, I mentioned this before that, that I worry that there are some firms out there that have information governance practices that are very good at the process part, at developing policies, at developing retention schedules, but that they haven't really worked with IT to understand how those sorts of things really get implemented in a company. So if you happen to be there and this is something that you already do or something you're interested in doing, 
finding that tie-in with technology is really important. And so it's it's not just enough to be able to develop a policy and a schedule and just give it to your client and say, go use this and you're, you'll, you'll be fine. You've got to make it implementable. It has to be executable or you're not doing your client a, a, a good service. So I would say that, frankly, the best way for lawyers who want to enter this is to do what you're already good at doing understand record keeping requirements, understand risk, writing reasonable, solid records policies, things that make sense that, that, would, that, that companies should be able to follow that aren't, aren't too onerous, that are easy to understand, and learn to develop retention schedules that are easy to understand and actually easy to follow. They can't be complicated. We're working with a company right now that has a 10,000 line retention schedule. No one is ever going to follow that. They won't be able to find anything in that schedule. They don't know what it is. It's got to be simple and easy. We're seeing these things happen that are much less complicated. And the more likely that you, the easier you make it, the more likely users will follow it. And the more, the more likely it will be easy for IT to implement it. I think that that's really two tips and good ways to getting into uh, the field. All right. That's enough on information governance. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S-insurance.com. All right, and now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. There's been so much talk lately about ChatGPT, a fair amount of that generated by ChatGPT itself, with a lot of hype, a lot of fear-mongering, and a lot of noise. However, we both are bullish on its potential, and we've talked about generative AI tools quite a bit on the show lately. And we thought it was time for the two of us to try a substantial AI demo project. And I think we found it. We've also found that we can best get these kinds of projects, like our second Bray project, started moving forward by pre-announcing them on the show. And that kind of forces us to actually do them and get them finished so we can report back to you. So, Tom, what new project are we planning to dive into and how much will our listeners love it? Well, I hope they'll love it a lot, but what we're planning on doing is uh – what we've been noticing lately is we've been noticing that people are beginning to train ChatGPT and other AI tools, but primarily ChatGPT, on text that they've created or even on whole books. Having fed those books into ChatGPT and providing some parameters around it, they're able to create 
a chat bot that you can ask questions to and get answers that are based on the book. And those answers generally are written really in the voice of what the book was written in. So it almost sounds like you're talking to the lawyer when you're asking, uh, excuse me, the author when you're asking that kind of question. So uh, we thought, what a better way to have people learn more about our book. Maybe you've bought the book. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you want to learn more about it and learn more about what we think about collaboration tools. So it's been our idea that we're going to train an AI on our book and see if we can uh, develop that. Uh, Dennis, this was something you originally had, had, had suggested. What made you think about that? Well, I'd heard of people doing it and, and uh, played with the one site where they had done it. And I just, I really liked it. And I, I think that as people looked at Chad GPT um, and GPT 3 or 3.5, soon to be 4, it seemed like they were expecting it and asking it to do way too much. And, you know, like people and the standards they were judging it by just seemed really crazy, you know, to say like, oh, okay, this, I'm really disappointed with Chad GPT because it wrote this brief and it made up case names. And you're going like, well, that's given like what it's supposed to do, that's not, not totally surprising. And as an aside time, humans have also been known to do that. Human <laughs> lawyers have been also known to do that. Yeah. So I said, well, what are some of these simple simple things that kind of really show off what it would do that would be really helpful um, and that you could see how, how it could be a stepping stone to, to something more sophisticated? So kind of complex enough project that you would act, we'd actually have to learn something, and um, but something that could be useful and it'd be a great way to kind of, you know, help us market and get out the information in, in our book. Uh, and so, so that's why I like the idea. I think it's a good, a good example. And if we do that, then it becomes the next step for me becomes, oh, uh, now I can train it on my articles or we could train it on the podcast transcripts or do something like that. And it's one to me. It's the type of project that can evolve once we get the basics of it. So I'm looking forward to to getting started in it. And I think it's uh, Tom. You you've been really good over the years with some of these things that require a little bit of flow to them and kind of sorting out how how things kind of work together. So I, I think this will be great projects for us to work on. Well, and there's a. I'll just say you you also shared with me a link to a, uh, a guy who's been posting books uh, up to a site to basically say, pick a book to talk to, and you can ask questions of the book. And uh, I'm not sure about any copyright violations of what's going on or whether there's been permission to upload this stuff, but it is pretty cool to talk to some of the books here and get questions. I talked to the Atomic Habits book and asked about habit stacking and gave me a reasonably good answer about what habit stacking was. So um, it is possible. It is a good thing. So Stay tuned here, and hopefully we'll have some good news for you in a couple of months. So maybe we could even get to the holy grail of, like, you can, uh, you know, the sort of famous German philosophers that are so hard to understand. We could, like, <laughs> we could have them explain what the heck they're actually saying. We will see. So now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. 
So I actually want to give a little bit of follow-up to my leaving LastPass uh, segment of the last podcast. If any of you happen to be on LastPass and you happen to be either thinking about or in the process of leaving two tips that ha- that I've found useful. I've moved over to one password. I'm very happy with it so far, but here are two tips. One is don't just close down your LastPass account. I have no trust for LastPass right now, so I wouldn't just close it down. I would delete my passwords first and I'd, I'd let it run the cycle because, or either delete them permanently so you know they're gone. I've deleted lots of passwords over time and I can promise I can, I, I will, I, I know that they, they appear to have been deleted from my account. I assume that they're deleted and, and, and that they won't be anywhere else. I'd rather not just shut down my account without deleting them first. So I would say, go through the effort it takes to delete your passwords before you shut down your LastPass account. The other thing to do is, is that if you do move to a tool like 1Password or maybe some of the others, look to see if they offer you a discount for moving over from another another uh, service. I, I told them, I told 1Password I was a LastPass user. I sent them my invoice on how much I had, uh, had paid for the last year of service, and they gave me a discount, essentially paying me for my last my LastPass subscription to move over. So that was a good deal. I got a good, great deal on uh, joining uh, 1Password. So two handy tips in case you uh, are making the change from LastPass. Dennis. The second tip is awesome. So I saw this thing, and I forget where I saw it. could have been in in, uh, Recommendo, but there's a site called Vacay, V-A-C-A-Y, and they have a vacation and travel chat assistant, um, which is an example of these AI chatbot things. And so um, my wife and I have been watching this Digging for Britain TV show, which is, is really cool. And uh, so I had this idea that maybe we should go on a vacation in some time where we like volunteer on an archaeology uh, dig. So I went to this chatbot and I said, you know, I put in, you know, what would be, uh, what are the best archaeology dig vacations? Um, and I also said for seniors because uh, kind of getting in that range. And it, it came out with like five recommendations that were really helpful to to let me know that such things actually exist, where you might contact them. And it was just like a good overview to say like, oh, if you want to go here, there's there, there's some stuff in the U.S., here are some other things. And it was just super useful, really easy to use. And it, you know, sometimes you're going like, oh, I'd like to go on vacation, but I don't know, especially if you're talking with your spouse, you know, like, oh, you decide, you decide kind of thing. And this could be a way uh, just to give you some suggestions. And, and so it's not it's not promising to like plan your trip or anything, but I think just when you're you're just looking for ideas or saying like what might be possible, I think this this these types of little AI chat tools could be really useful in in that setting yeah we uh, I went to it and I were going on a cruise uh, this summer and I put in what are the best places to see in Berlin and what are the re- best restaurants in Copenhagen and it just in, in a second spit spit out like 10 different recommendations for each one I thought it was whether they turn out to be good or not I'm gonna have to research them but it was very confident and very fast and so I'm looking forward to uh, looking into the answers that it gave yeah I, I was gonna say Tom that's one thing people say about 
about Chat GPT is it is supremely confident in its answers. <laughs> exactly. All right, so that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode on the Legal Talk Network's page for our show. If you like to like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes on the Legal Talk Network site or within your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach out to us on LinkedIn, maybe on Twitter, although that's becoming less and less each day. And remember, you can leave us a voicemail. We are at 720-441-6820. We love your questions for our B segment. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. And you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. And we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network. <laughs>